Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we are going to be going over an overview of uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. I generally, obviously, prefer to stick very strongly to the plan of going over an archetype each week, but I do think that it's helpful to have like a foundation to understand the context that those archetypes exist in, and I also think that for everyone who's just getting to a new format, you want to have like a bigger framework and you want a little bit of information about everything for your early drafts. That's why we're doing this this week. As far as some other things to explain, uh, for anyone who's a regular viewer, this is not my usual background. I'm in the process of moving. I'm recording at another location. This is temporary. Also, I'm not using my computer, so I'm not logged into some things that I'm usually logged into, which means I'm not currently logged into Drafting Archetypes Patreon, which means that I haven't posted the uh, notes for this episode yet, and I also don't at this exact moment know who my uh, new patrons are. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to skip the Patreon thanks portion of the episode this week. I'll be sure to shout everyone out uh, when I record the next episode. I do appreciate the support, of course, even if I don't at this exact moment know who it's from or that it exists. So anyway, getting into the actual content rather than explanations and disclaimers and stuff. Let's start with uh, kind of the big picture notes on what I have learned so far. I'm probably ballpark 10 drafts in. I've been using computers that don't have 17 lands installed on them, so I don't have more precise information than that. My, my guess is 10, maybe a little more than that draft's completed. Currently, I believe that cheap cards are really important. It's not necessarily the case that every deck is going to be really fast, but I do think that fast decks are very possible, and it's really important to have a battlefield presence early, and I think that uh, this is a format that's much more like Kaldheim than it is like Strixhaven, where um, you're more, a lot more likely to want to have one-drops want to have two drops, you know, just get get on board early, and I think it's, that's really important to not fall behind. So if you're an aggressive deck, you want, you want to make sure that you are starting your pressure early, and if you're a control deck, you want to make sure that you have those defensive cards. That covers uh, thoughts about cheap spells. As far as colors go, I think that it's fairly difficult to play like three balanced colors, but it's really, really easy to splash a random single off-color bomb or maybe two cards, and it doesn't even necessarily matter if the two cards that you're splashing are the same color as each other, uh, provided you're a deck that makes treasures. But also, you don't have to have cards that tell you that they make treasures in order to make treasures. If you venture, you can also make treasures from dungeons. And so between cards that specifically say they make treasures and venturing, you have really consistent access to treasures, so you can get a single random off-color mana. So if you have some, you know, just any single color, like single colored mana symbol bomb that's not necessarily in one of your colors that you see at any point in the draft, 
it's probably a good idea to take it and try to find a way to make it work in your deck using treasures in some capacity to cast it. I'm going to say you want to generally avoid trying to be like balanced three color or having more than a few cards in your splash. But I'm also going to note that because the fixing that exists is such a low priority for people because they're generally playing two or even one color and they have treasures to uh, support their splashes, it means people aren't really looking for cards like Evolving Wilds and Temple of the Dragon Queen. So if you take those cards aggressively, you can actually end up with multiple of them plus treasures. You can actually play a multicolor deck, um, and it doesn't really matter what color that's based in. I don't know that I would recommend it because, as I said, uh, I do think it's really important to be making early plays. I think tap lands hurt you a lot in this format, and I do think that you want to uh, not struggle setting up in terms of like having cards that you can't cast yet because they're the wrong colors and stuff. So I do think that you generally want to try to avoid it, but if you have access to enough, like, you know, if, if you're seeing bombs, I recommend taking them, especially because a lot of the packs have a lot of cards that are not necessarily very exciting or uh, useful only in a specific archetype. Often you'll find a card at a higher rarity that's a lot more powerful than cards in your color might be. I do think that the format's really, really deep in terms of long on cards that you'd be willing to play. I've found with almost every deck I draft, I have like 10 cards I would consider playing that I end up, you know, cutting and deck building. And so you can definitely afford to take powerful cards when you see them, uh, regardless of their colors, and sort it out later. Sometimes it's worth switching colors later in a draft than you might otherwise because of the importance of, uh, you know, the most powerful cards and the depth of filler playables. So the format's very encouraging of pivoting and splashing and trying to find ways to use bombs and very forgiving of giving up picks and commons and stuff that you've already drafted because you'll find more than enough stuff to end up with a playable deck. And so that means that if you're getting past powerful stuff in a variety of colors, it, you might end up in a spot where you want to pay attention to the fact that, you know, there are cards like of uh, Evolving Wilds and Temple of the Dragon Queen that can let you get a little crazy. But again, I really think, you know, in general, the more aggressive you are, the more you want to try to stick to two colors. And I really think that this format rewards aggression in a way that would lead me to say that, you know, even if you are getting past a variety of bombs, I think you generally want to try to end up settling in like a two color deck and then maybe splashing another bomb if you can't fit all your bombs in two colors using treasure or something. But I would strongly encourage having, you know, base two colors by the end of the draft. But again, it's okay to be flexible about what those are and pivot during the draft before settling, uh, maybe a little bit more than you would in other formats. That covers kind of the way to approach thinking about colors. Also, in general, equipment in this format is extremely plentiful. There's just tons and tons of common equipment and a vast majority of it's very clunky to move around. Uh, generally, equip costs are around three. And so I would say that that means that you wanna be really careful not to draft too much equipment. The equipment is good. It's like you wanna play some of it, but you don't want to go overboard because you can't really move it around. So you wanna, at some point, be able to like spend some mana, use it to trade up and do all the stuff that equipment does. But if you have multiple pieces of equipment, it's gonna be hard to really leverage more than one at a time. 
you want to try to stick to just you know one to three uh, total pieces of equipment in most decks. Obviously there are exceptions if you have equipment that is cheaper to equip or if you're doing specific equipment theme stuff in white red especially if you have the white red gold uncommon. That's my notes on equipment and then kind of related to equipment there are a lot of mana sinks in the format. You know, there's the blue common that you can spend six mana to essentially draw a card with a die roll in there. There's like the 04 Venture wall in blue, so that's two different blue mana sinks. But there's also like the white 1 1 flyer that can tap it and another creature to venture. There are a variety of um, colorless things that let you spend mana to venture. There's just stuff to spend your mana on aside from uh, equipment. And definitely a format where games can go long. If you're just kind of sitting there while your opponent is uh, progressing their game by spending mana every turn, you're generally going to get buried by whatever they're doing. So you want to make sure that you have some way to do something um, while if a game stalls out, especially because there are you know some good defensive tools people can uh, draft to try to create that board stall, even if your deck is drafted to try to avoid that. You want to be realistic about how good you are at ending a game against someone who's trying to stop you from doing that and how likely it is that the game might stall and then prioritize mana sinks accordingly. All right, so those were my big picture thoughts. Now I want to touch on uh, each of the 10 two-color pair archetypes and as far as what they are generally doing. There are a lot of cross synergies available and a lot of specific bombs or powerful cards that you might want to draft around that might lead you to doing something slightly different from what your color combination normally does, and that's fine. Some of these, like, normal plans are more supported than others. It's more important to do them or easier to do them. I would say, in general, take the default plan of the colors with a grain of salt. Going over them, blue-white, their overlapping mechanic is certainly venture. I think that um, as far as, like, what you want to be doing with that. I think Delver's Torch, the uh, one and a white common equipment that equips for three and gives plus one plus one and when this creature attacks Venture, I think that you want to take advantage of the fact that Blue and White offers a lot of flyers, so you have evasions, you can put the torch on an evasive creature so that you can consistently attack, get your Venture trigger, push some extra damage. I think Ranger's Hawk is a great way to, like, have cheap flyer, start impacting the uh, board right away, potentially push some damage, get that like synergistic adventure mana sink going. Similarly, I think Secret Door is a totally reasonable card. Blue 04 that uh, you can spend five mana blue four to venture at sorcery speed. You don't have to tap the door to do it. I think that as far as a very traditional kind of like uh, stoppers and flyers, approach to blue white. Uh, I think like both of those one drops that are also mana sinks that like get you on the board both play to that kind of game plan which is what I think you want to do. You're not the fastest deck so you want some of that defensive stuff that'll give you time to like you know stabilize and then win a race with your flyers or like stabilize and get value with your venturing. It's fine to lean more into aggressive flying stuff or lean more into grindy venture stuff or do some of both but you know again 
with this archetype as with all the other archetypes i do think you want to prioritize a low curve here i think it's especially true as you lean more into stuff like torch the cards that i mentioned which are all mana sinks so you obviously want to play the cards from your hand so that then you can like have your mana freed up to use their abilities venture isn't just in blue white venture is kind of like shared by all the esper colors so there are other venture archetypes i think blue white um, from uh, like among them wants to most highly prioritize having a low curve and we see that explicitly rewarded in blue-white uh, rare monk class, which is all about casting more than one spell per turn, which is a reminder to keep your curve low in this archetype. Um, so that's blue-white. White-black. White-black is also very good at venture. I think white-black wants to be a little more grindy, a little more focused on trading. So where blue-white's going to end up in a little bit more of a tempo or kind of space potentially where it's like racing with flyers uh white black is um gonna prioritize evasion a little bit less and do a little bit more kind of like trading and just like getting like fractional card advantage from its venturing and using that to like you know play an attrition game grind an opponent down black cards like fates reversal and precipitous drop fates reversal is one in a black uh, return a creature from your graveyard to your hand venture precipitous drop is two and a black uh, enchant creature enchanted creature gets minus two minus two venture and if you've completed a dungeon it gets minus five minus five so both of those are basically like get a card worth of value and also venture you also have like the white three and a white three four etb venture that's um veteran dungeoneer with these venture decks i should definitely talk about uh which dungeons you're going through i think with blue-white, because you're uh, a lot of like lower impact cards that uh, venture a lot, I think you're really commonly going to want to go through the long dungeon, uh, the Mind Mage or whatever, uh, Mad Maid, Mad something. The one that's like seven steps to complete instead of four steps to complete, because the payoff's greater, but you need to be venturing more to get to it. Um, I think that's a really good one for blue-white specifically, especially if you have the blue-white gold uncommon that doubles your rooms. Even if that's not in your hand early, you might find it as you're getting to the more powerful rooms, and then doubling those can be really, really, really strong. With white-black, I think you're more likely to complete the smaller dungeons. I think it's not super clear to me that you're generally one or the other, I could see it going either way. Theoretically, like, more of an attrition plan might push toward uh, Tomb of Annihilation, but I also kind of think of the the other one, I don't remember the name, try one, then make a goblin or treasure, then three small things, then draw a card. I think that's kind of like a default go-to dungeon uh, partially because the scry one up front uh, is often pretty valuable in the early game, so if you don't know what to commit to you often like end up just wanting to do that with your first try and then like the rest of it's pretty good like general utility so yeah that that's white black a little bit more more attrition doing venture stuff white red is about equipment very aggressive deck the like snap to uh, equipment the rapier and the shield are very good in this archetype because i think dwarfold champions like Dwarfhold Champion and Armory Veteran, I think are both really key uh, commons. 
and that's the one in a white three one that gets plus o plus two when it's equipped and the red one in a red two two that has menace when it's equipped you want to get those things equipped immediately and as a trick so you want these flash equipment that snapped the creature so that you can get those bonuses right away and um, use them and you know use it as a combat trick even later in the game um, so you can do equipment without needing to spend a ton of mana on it and then obviously those things are somewhat expensive to re-equip and that's where Bruner the white red uncommon can come in handy that card's just super strong because the equipment it, because there is so much equipment and it's so expensive to equip getting to equip it for free is just offers conveys a massive advantage uh white red really aggressive um you want a low curve obviously because you want to get to the point where you can spend your mana on your equipment and it's white red like you're not great going long your stuff is pretty small ball but it's really good at ending games honestly i've had way more success in this format when i've been aggressive than when i haven't been i, I think this archetype is pretty good white green theoretical synergy is life gain i've found that there aren't that many different common cards that give you repeated life gain uh it's more stuff that just like you know creatures with me that gives you life gain or something and if you don't have repeatable life gain then you might not find it worth prioritizing like the celestial unicorn which is the more expensive ajani's pride mate um three mana for a three two when you gain a life put a plus one plus one counter on it it's only really good if you are like if you're you know gonna trigger it once or twice a little bit later in the game it's just not that strong compare it to something like um quandrix apprentice and strixhaven which you know comparing cross format is questionable but i think that's a card that at least for me really taught how punishing it can be to like have this creature that comes in small and needs to build up over time if you can't build it up a lot it might be better to avoid it so steadfast paladin is i, sh I should have mentioned steadfast paladin in white red also much like uh white red in kaldheim where there's a lot of equipment obviously you want to prioritize uh creatures with keywords to put that equipment on so like ranger's hawk and um steadfast paladin are super important uh commons because they let you get more value out of equipment oh sorry uh chad has pointed out that i misspoke i said quandrix apprentice obviously i meant quandrix pledge mage the three mana two two they can grow over time which is obviously much more comparable to a three mana three two that can grow over time so anyway steadfast paladin is just super like it's a great card in the format because i do think it's you know the aggressive decks are strong life gains good against aggressive deck decks there's also a lot of equipment you know shocker the story seeker this this card that always overperforms in every format is also good in this format you know apart from the normal reason like all of that that makes it good also green white is a life gain theme deck and this is the best source of multiple life gain triggers so super high priority if you can't get that there is sylvan shepherd which is the three mana three two vigilance when it attacks gain a variable amount of life if you you know if you end up with life gain payoffs it's definitely worth prioritizing those things that you can trigger them a lot green white can also just be you know generic creatures and pump spells and get a bunch of stuff into play and then use the white things that give temporary bonuses uh the pegasus that launches a creature and the paladin that gives all of your creatures plus one plus one and vigilance 
both of those play well in just like creature decks with big green creatures and stuff. I, I would say you don't have to do the life gain thing. Certainly the rewards are there. Like there are enough cards on both sides of, you know, rewards enablers that if it's open and the cards are there, it's very strong to do it, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way and that's fine. So that brings us to blue-black. I have drafted blue-black several times, generally not very successfully, and I really don't know what it's trying to do. Obviously, there's some venture stuff going on here. They do overlap there, but then also, you know, there's like this kind of unblockable theme that is weird. I don't know if you're supposed to lean into it or ignore it or... I don't know if you're supposed to just like, okay, I have a couple unblockable things in my like generally defensive deck and maybe I end up creating a board stall with like my venturing queen crab, uh, which, yeah, which queen crab? The shortcut seeker, the blue three, two, five that ventures when it hits your opponent. That's a card that can lead to a board stall. So like maybe you just play some of those, some removal, you end up hanging out, you have some evasive creatures that can end the game, or maybe you're supposed to draft a lot of evasive creatures. Like it costs more to get unblockable than to get flying, which makes it harder to win a race against an aggressive deck that's just has bigger numbers and doesn't have unblockable. If you're just attacking each other, they're not interested in blocking you. You kind of have to like stop taking advantage of your unblockability because you end up needing to play defense because they're hitting you harder than you're hitting them. So I wouldn't try to go super deep on that in general. I think it's more of a control slash venture deck. There's something going on here where there are a lot of saboteur type creatures in white black, uh, creatures that do something when they hit your opponent. Um, so there's like the Yanti Fangblade, which is the black two, two two death touch when it hits them venture. And then there's the three two for two and a blue that when it hits your opponent draws a card in addition to the shortcut seeker that I already mentioned, and a few others. And so you can get those through in a variety of ways. You could play something like Thieves' Duels to make them unblockable. Skeptical about doing a lot of that, but a little bit might be strong if you have a lot of those kinds of cards. You can also just play removal spells and kill your opponent's creatures and attack. You can also use the blue-black uncommon to make those things unblockable to get those triggers. So... There's definitely something going on here in terms of creatures that are good to connect, um, potentially being paired with removal spells, getting value off of Venture uh, to play a control game, similarly to how I was discussing in white-black. But themes aren't overly strong here, I guess is uh, kind of my conclusion. So uh, blue-red, the explicit theme obviously is rolling dice. Almost all of the die rolling cards are in blue and red. The other colors have very, very, very little of that collectively. All of the stuff that explicitly pays you for rolling dice is in blue and or red. All the stuff that pays you for rolling dice and all the stuff that improves your die rolling. I don't like very many of the common red die roll cards very much, but I do think that Pixie Guide, which is the 1-3 for uh, one and a blue, that lets you roll an extra die whenever you roll dice. And a lot of the blue die rolling cards, I think, are pretty strong. The red common die rolling cards, I think they're a little bit more expensive and generally one-shot or just not a great rate for my taste. So I prefer to, I guess, go mostly blue cards for that and then only go into the red die rolling stuff if I'm pretty long on 
cards that are paying me for just like rolling dice but i think that it's fine to play it as a little bit more of a you know just like use just generically good red cards like dragon's fire and burning hands and the other removal spells like a lot of the blue die roll stuff is card draw basically so you can just play removal plus card draw incidentally pick up some die roll synergies or if you happen to get the right stuff you can go really deep on die rolling and get the benefits you would expect from a linear deck blue green i have no idea if this archetype is supposed to have a theme uh it's gold uncommon is an 04 that you can uh spend four mana to draw a card and play an extra land which obviously doesn't really point to anything in particular like have mana draw cards block that's all that's all just generic blue green stuff i think generic blue green stuff describes the color combination pretty well as far as what i would prioritize i would say in green i think you want to specifically look for underdark basilisk which is the one two death touch and spoils the hunt which is the bite spell uh, that your creature deals damage to their creature but it doesn't fight back the reason I mention that is because I think that the blue common removal spell, Charm Sleep, is pretty bad in the format. I think that there are a lot of ways to punish you for using enchantment-based removal spells. I know this is not surprising to hear from me. I'm uh, traditionally much lower on auras that attempt to answer creatures than most players are, but I would really highly prioritize not needing to use Charm Sleep, which means that there's not a lot of removal available to you. So you want to prioritize being able to use the green removal that exists. So the um, Death Touch plus Bite combo will give you some removal, which I think is important in the kind of controlling nature of what's going on with blue green. As I mentioned, other colors, I think Secret Door is pretty good here. I think you want to have early defense stuff and some uh, late mana sinks and then also just you know good raid creatures and tricks and stuff i think like the aggressive green creatures play pretty well with uh like the minus two power draw card cantrip and stuff your theme is going to be pretty loose in blue green you're mostly just looking for like good cards and to try to avoid falling into the traps that blue green has like not having a lot of removal black red this deck is about treasures but i've also had a ton of success with the steel sacrifice stuff there's just one common threaten but the important side of the equation is good sack outlets in which there are specifically the uh two one ghoul that can sack one thing per turn to get plus two plus two i think it's fantastic and then there's also the sacrifice a creature or artifact, draw two cards, make a treasure for one in a black that uh, gives you another really reliable sack outlet. At that point, you're trying to assemble the combo of cast two spells in a turn, but because they only cast five, cost five mana total to cast both steal your guy and sacrifice it to draw cards, uh, you can get away with that. Five is not too much mana to ask for uh, kill your opponent's creature, draw two cards, and hit him for some damage and make a treasure. Uh, just really, really strong. You also have Shambling Ghoul, which uh, I love. Or Shambling Ghast, rather. Uh, black 1-1, one, one, when it dies, give something minus one, minus one, or make a treasure. This plays really, really well with both of the Sackalots that I mentioned, uh, because both of those let you sacrifice it in instant speed at will so you can use it as a combat trick or a reliable removal spell for any x1 and there are a lot of x1s in the format 
also, as I mentioned, just like getting on the board early is pretty valuable. And so having a one drop that can often trade with two drops because if it, you know, it, it, it trades with two toughness creatures if it gets in combat with them. I think it, it just plays super, super well. I've played as many of, as I have played five copies of Shambling Ghast in a deck that I trophied with, and I was happy to draw as many of them as I drew every game. I'm more interested in some treasure stuff. Basically, I think the sacrifice steal stuff is stronger than the, like, if you spent a treasure to cast this stuff. I think of the, if you spent a treasure to cast this stuff, the best common is just the 2-2 that loses life and draws a card. Though I might be underestimating the 4-3 haste. I think the discard spell is pretty bad. I think black red is good. I think it wants to be aggressive. And I think that it splashes really well. And you want to be sure to take advantage of that and not pass any single colored bombs in any color. Because I think that it's very easy to get treasures. I think plundering barbarian is really good. That's the 3 mana 2-2 that either makes a treasure or kills an artifact. Both those modes are super relevant because there are a lot of artifacts, uh, not only the equipment, but also uh, some artifact creatures. Remember that things like Secret Door are artifacts, so pay attention to whether you can just blow up one of your opponent's creatures, even if it's colored with that card. The archetype has very good removal in like Dragon's Fire, and I do think that the three, four mana sorcery speed kill something make a treasure. That's a card that I suspect some people might think that I'd be down on because I have spoken against four mana sorcery speed removals in the past, but I think that black red is pretty good at getting under your opponent, which uh, makes four mana sorcery speed removals a lot better when you have more on the board than your opponent does. It's not great for catching up, but it's good for pressing an advantage. And then just kill a thing, generate a resource of any kind is a very strong effect. It's a treasure once you're at four mana is not that great of a resource, but it's pretty solid. Black, green, morbid. Morbid being um, an old mechanic that is uh, if a creature died this turn, generate an effect. There's a lot of that in this format. I think that the best way to be able to trigger that is to have Sepulchre. I don't actually know how to pronounce that word. The the ghoul that gives that is a 2-1 that lets you sacrifice something that's free. Sacrifice a thing is a great way to guarantee that you get your morbid trigger if you need it. You also just want things that trade well, like for example, Yanti Fangblade, which is the 2-2 death touch that ventures when it hits your opponent. Your opponent's incentivized to block that because if they don't, you get to venture. But when they do block it, you're guaranteed a trade basically because of death touch. It's a really good way to set up your morbid triggers um, that you can cast after you attack with that. So uh, I think that that's a pretty high priority in this archetype. Also, I think the five mana four one reach creature that makes a two two is pretty good here, both because it gives you multiple bodies that you can trade off to uh, get your morbid stuff going, especially since one of them is a 4-1, which, you know, much like a death touch creature, you can basically force your opponent to trade something for it whenever you want. Also, it has reach, which uh, green-black is historically desperate for because it generally doesn't have a lot of flying, and it's not super fast, so it can lose the game to flyers if you don't have enough sufficient flying defense. So that card is very good fit for green black. Also, I want to mention that the skeleton enchantment, the rare green black card is really, really strong, especially if you combine it with the uncommon skeleton lord that also makes skeletons. Also that uncommon skeleton lord that makes skeletons is 
kind of ridiculous if you combine it with another copy of itself, because then when one creature dies, you make two creatures, and the creatures are three threes. And then red-green. This is the uh, pack tactics deck. Um, both colors have things that want you to attack with six power worth of creatures. It's worth noting that this isn't like if you are attacking with six power worth of creatures, it's if you have attacked with six power worth of creatures, which means that your opponent can't like fizzle your trigger by killing one of your creatures after uh, you've declared your attackers. Once you've attacked with six power, that's locked in and you get your stuff. So that makes it a little bit better or a little bit less risky than it might read if you haven't thought about that. Um, and similarly, don't try to blow your opponent's triggers after they attack. Make sure that you kill their creatures before they attack if you're trying to prevent them from getting that trigger. As far as what you're looking for with this archetype, I do think that it's, you know, red-green sometimes, as we saw in Kaldheim, tries to go really big. I think this is a smaller red-green deck for the most part. I think you want to prioritize, you know, cheap creatures. I think Null Hunter and Hobgoblin Captain are really good here. You want to be able to surprise your opponent by triggering pack tactics, both because they won't necessarily see it coming, they won't necessarily be prepared for it, and because it means that you're triggering it faster than you otherwise would, which means that anything that's putting haste power into play is good. That can be something that pumps something or something like a creature with haste. So that means like the uh, four mana three three that either gains three life or gives something plus two plus two until end of turn is a pretty good way to get like surprise pack tactics, especially because turn four is a turn that's pretty nice to trigger the ability and also pretty hard to trigger the ability. Like if you have like a null hunter and another null hunter or a null hunter and a hobgoblin captain, you're gonna be at four or five power and you'd really like to get those pack tactics triggers. So if you can do something to give yourself another power or two, now you can get those triggers on turn four, which is a pretty big game. Also because you need to be attacking to get these triggers and to like get the value off of this mechanic, you wanna uh, prioritize combat tricks, um, especially the plus two, plus two, untapped, trample, just because you'll be able to attack into a lot more different boards if you have a combat trick to make combat go your way. With red-green, do prioritize pack tactics, those cards are strong, and prioritize things that make it better, ways to get extra power into play to trigger it earlier, ways to make combat go your way. Uh, the one time I drafted red-green, I didn't think my deck was very strong, and I got seven wins with it anyway. Fundamentals of trying to attack in this format are pretty good, I think. That wraps up my coverage of the archetypes and the big picture stuff, which means it's time to turn it over to questions from chat. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, uh, be sure to check us out at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. All of that will be back to normal functionality with uh, notes and everything next week. Also, at some point in the future, I will post these notes probably in the next few days. Getting to questions from chat. Are boots playable in red-green? So I have seen uh, tweets from other people who have had success with the boots. This is the um, one red equipment that gives plus one plus zero oh, and haste red to play, uh, colorless to equip. I personally haven't played that card yet, 
but structurally it makes sense that they would be good in red-green. They make it very hard for your opponent to know when you're going to be able to trigger your pack tactics, which makes it hard for them to break up. Green creatures are big, so you get a lot of value out of giving them haste. It's a good fit. It would make sense. Yes, I, I imagine it has to be playable in that archetype. Next question, is it a bomb-heavy format? Uh, yes. I would say that there are a lot of really, really, really strong cards. As I mentioned, it's worth pivoting into being able to cast them. I do think that any time aggro is really strong, that works as a way to beat a deck with bombs. Like, And also, anytime, it also means that when you have bombs in your deck, sometimes your opponent will just kill you before you draw them or cast them or something. So I don't think that it's like, oh, you know, this is just luck-based, it's all who opens the bombs will win every time or something. I, I think that the aggressive decks are really strong, and that that does um, uh, offer resistance to the idea that the format's dominated by bombs. From Tom Martell, about the best place to draft the set from, so shout out to Tom for uh, letting me use his place these past few days while I'm uh, relocating to California and trying to find a place. He's been very hospitable, and it's been a very good place to draft from. In general, what should be our strategy slash mindset drafting? I would hope that I've touched on that to some extent, but to uh, try to sum up an answer to that question, I would say you should be looking to maximize the bomb, the rare bombs that you see, and also look to be aggressive where you can, probably. Ideally, you'll have bombs and you'll use them and you'll draft a synergistic deck that uses them well. If you don't see bombs, you will draft a synergistic deck and air toward aggression uh, would be my default positioning. How much do you value venture? It's worth a fraction of a card. The more of it you have, the better it is. There are synergies that pay you off for it, but it's always something. Really more of a card-by-card kind of question. Next question is, do I think it's important to prioritize two drops in this format? So, structurally, I think that two drops are important in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. But I think that that's largely because there are a ton of good two drops. Which means that while your like deck and curve and everything should use and be aware of two drops, compared to a lot of other formats, you might not need to draft them as highly because there are just so many. So that actually comes down to a question philosophically about what you mean by prioritize. You need to recognize that they're important, but you don't need to pick them as highly as that might imply. So yes and no to is it important to prioritize them. Next question, advice for people coming off Strixhaven, which is super spell heavy. Uh, what are the adjustments? In Strixhaven, people would often ask, doesn't this deck not have enough creatures? Or how many creatures does a deck need to have? Or some other question that really didn't apply in Strixhaven because uh, Lesson and Learning gave you so much access to creatures via tokens. In this format, that's not the case. You need to like actually cast creatures if you want to have them. And because there's so much equipment and fight cards and pump spells and like a lot of cards depend on having creatures, and I think that board presence is really important. This is more of a normal limited format that does rely on and revolve around creatures. And as far as I've seen, there aren't really like you know weird like low creature or creatureless archetypes. Creatures are just broadly important for basically every deck. Creatures matter. Your creature count matters. Um, as far as like an actual number that you need, that's going to vary somewhat uh, based on what you're doing. 
I would say if you don't have a lot of stuff that needs creatures and you have like removal and card draw stuff, you can probably get away with like 12, 13, 14 type range. If you have equipment and pump spells and generally your cards require creatures and you're looking to like curve out and you're generally aggressive, you want to be more in the like 15 to 18 kind of range, I guess. Do I think that someone can somewhat reliably draft an Esper Venturing deck? This is, I assume, a question about the validity of three color. And I think that uh, the answer largely is yes, but you want to pay a lot of attention to like what that is and how you're making your mana work. You can make it work in balanced three by prioritizing Evolving Wilds and Temple of the Dragon Queen and getting that stuff and like using the fact that Venture lets you scry and gives you treasures and stuff to smooth your mana. Or you can be more base black and splashing either blue or white and using treasures to cast that without necessarily relying on a lot of you know islands or planes whichever one you're splashing presumably basically there's there's a difference between three color esper and two color esper splashing the third but between those two you can certainly find a way to make it work where you're all of them. That's a slightly different question from should you try to be Esper when you're drafting Venture, where like, oh, maybe I should just try to be Esper because I can find all the Venture cards then, or, um, or well, most I can use most of the Venture cards. I don't think that you need to like plan to be Esper. I think that, uh, as I mentioned, the format's very deep on playables, and so you won't need to go to three to get playables, and there's no reason to mess with your mana unless you're getting cards that pay you enough for doing that to justify it. So I would say, you know, generally try to stick to two, but if you get a bomb and a third, you should certainly feel comfortable splashing it. I mentioned many ways to punish charm sleep. Does the same apply to uh, minimus containment, the arrest variant that turns something into a treasure? So... I mean, both of those get somewhat punished by the thing that lets you sacrifice a creature to draw two and make a treasure, and the, like, Beholder that makes you sacrifice an enchantment, although that card's not great, so it doesn't see a ton of play. I do think that the Arrest variant is better because it answers static abilities and any permanents. I've used it to deal with my opponent's teleportation portal, which is are really important rare to answer there are a number of you know rare bombs that are enchantments or you know non-creature permanents that you want to be able to answer bounce spells and stuff are less likely to be able to save this so um also it's single white rather than double blue so i, I do think that that's a better card than charm sleep I, i'm not super high on it but i'm currently happy to play it where i'm more unhappy to play charm sleep Next question, what do you think about synergy versus bombs in this format? Is it more synergy-based or play the bombs to win? If you have bombs, play them. There are bombs that can win games. If you don't have bombs or if you do have bombs, there are synergies that matter. Your deck will be stronger if you use them. Also, one of the synergies is a collection of cards that are good at attacking your opponent. Is this a format where blue wants to be playing a number of counter spells? I think so. I've been playing the counter spell. I don't think it's great. I think they're fine. I haven't generally liked my control decks, but I'm still kind of learning how to draft them. You know, gets into stuff like I think you want to prioritize like one and two mana plays that let you not fall behind. And then from there, you can like leave up your counter spells to like answer the powerful late game stuff. Obviously, if we believe that uh, there are a lot of bombs and they're really powerful, being able to counter them is good. Structurally, I think the counter spells are solid and it's 
probably good to be able to plan to play them. There are other instants and mana sinks that you can use at instant speed that play well with them. Not all blue decks are going to want a lot of counter spells. You want to pay a lot of attention to like your mana use and how you know when you're going to have them, the mana to cast them and how awkward it will be to set mana aside for them. But there are a lot of reasons to want to be able to counter things. In my opinion, are there any mythic uncommons in the set? Uh, super standout, great uncommons. I think a lot of the gold com uncommons are really good. I think Power Word Kill is a really strong removal spell. Offhand, I'm not thinking of any others, but this isn't something that I've like... It's not a question I'm prepared to answer precisely right now. Next question is about you find a cursed idol. That's the green. Destroy an artifact, enchantment, or make a treasure and scry. I thought it looked pretty good when I misread it and thought it was an instant. Playing it as a sorcery was really bad when I tried to cast it at instant speed. And then I took it out of my deck because if I can't blow out like an equipped creature with it, I'm a lot less interested. I think it's like okay to play if you're kind of like desperate for the mana fixing from the treasure, but I don't like it very much. Next question, are there any commons that I think are particularly good at countering these good aggressive strategies? Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned that I'm super into Shambling Ghast. Uh, it's very good against aggressive decks is part of why I like it so much. I also think that, you know, playing cards like Secret Door rather than not uh, gives you a significant cushion. Obviously, like, there's just good cheap removal and you should be playing it. But I, I think for the most part, my best attempt at answering that has been, yeah, just make sure your curve is low regardless of your strategy. This is a question for more discussion of comparing the different equipment. I think that I'm pretty into the torch, um, Delver's torch. I think that venturing when you attack is often a bigger payoff than the like marginal extra numbers offered by the other equipment. That certainly somewhat depends. You know, if you have evasion, that's probably more true. Um, also, if you have like more delve synergies or more venturing synergies and the more keywords you have, like the, like if you have lifelink, that would push toward the number mattering more. I think uh, plus two mace plays better with steadfast paladin than Delver's torch does. And I think there's a lot of stuff like that where like, you know, in general, the reach equipment, the bow and green, isn't as good as like the equipment that does something else if you're planning to attack because reach is a defensive keyword and you could have like more numbers or a more aggressive keyword but if you're like green black and using it to stay alive or blue green and using it to stay alive perhaps you could want it there so I do, like especially because so much of the equipment is kind of really similar right like there are a lot of different equipment that's two to play and three to three to equip you just want to think about like how it's going to play with your creatures and your game plan. But also, it doesn't matter very much. They're all so similar that if you play the wrong one, it's not necessarily a big deal. Um, it's just, you know, I think more about playing the right amount of equipment um, that you happen to be able to pick up. Uh, someone suggests that Battlecry Goblin, or whatever it's called, the, the goblin that makes a goblin and can pump your goblins is a mythic uncommon. Uh, that, that card has been very, very good, yes. That, that is a very strong, aggressive creature. Uh, best removals in the set. I think uh, Dragonfire is the best common, certainly the best common removal spell. 
I think Power Word Kill is the best uncommon removal spell, probably. I think I like Precipitous Drop the most of the black removal spells, though I think it and Kill a Creature Make a Treasure are both good. Also, if you count Shambling Ghast as a removal spell, which I kind of almost do, I think it's pretty good too. I think the red fireball is fine. I think I like the deal five to an attacker for two more than I like. Make something a treasure in white. I think the green spell is better than the white and blue removal. The green spell being the three mana do damage equal to a creature's power to something. Uh, That's my off the top of my head thoughts on the removal spells that came to mind. Next question is, is the seven-step dungeon a trap? I I, I have liked going through it in my blue-white dedicated venture decks, but I think that you need to know that you're going to venture a lot to want to do it. I think that's as much as I'm going to be able to cover tonight. I don't want to get too into the details of every single archetype. Um, This is a broad overview. Um, Hopefully it's been useful. The most important thing is that it's useful, but this should provide a good background understanding to move into the individual archetypes from. Obviously there's gonna be a lot of redundancy here, here where I'm gonna you know, say things in each of the archetypes that I've already said here, because I've gone over some thoughts on all of them, but as I cover each of them, it'll let me go into more detail and also correct things that I was wrong about here, because I am very few drafts in. I haven't like done my in-depth study of any of them. This is very much first impressions. So uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes, uh, one each week, where I will discuss the details of how to draft each of these archetypes that I touched on briefly here. Um, Thank you very much, everyone. So the next episode will be coming uh, shortly after this one is available. So thank you, everyone, and uh, goodbye for now.